Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week I'm recording early, so if I miss some fascism along the way, uh, don't despair, I'll get back to it next week. We're going to talk about reactions to the ongoing protests by farmers in India, continued aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, and we have a see you in hell for an Indonesian right-wing politician. So one fascist thing that happened this week was a Twitter dispute in India uh, regarding the ongoing protests or wave of protests by farmers and other agricultural workers in India. Uh, there is a wave of farmers' protests uh, over changes to agricultural policies, price issues, that sorts of things. Uh, these are massive protests uh, that have been taking place all over the country uh, and indeed internationally and were connected with a wave of strikes uh, several months ago. So on Tuesday, uh, the hashtag shoot, as in shoot them, uh, started trending surrounding pictures of these protesters. Um, it was trending in English and Hindi and other languages and things like that. Um, and the, the implication is just like, hey, we think that we think that you should shoot and kill all of these protesters. Um, it was calling them parasites, calling them uh, fake farmers, that, that it was some sort of psyop, that sort of crap. Um, and Twitter took an extremely long time to take this down. Uh, it took them several hours before they actually reacted seriously, uh, took this threat seriously at all. Uh, there were also calls for the protesters to be beaten by the police um, and other calls for them to be, you know, expelled from the country, that sort of thing. Uh, this was while protesters have been occupying public spaces in New Delhi uh, and the tweets were sent around massively, like to lots of people, um, including to leaders of the Indian defense and military organizations. Uh, one of the reasons that I want to highlight this is that uh, we've seen also in recent weeks a wave of Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms blocking a lot of users for, you know, what they describe as political extremism. And, you know, there's a degree to which that's understandable and good. You know, yeah, I don't want fascists to have a platform on the internet where they can reach anybody and everybody. But the thing is that predictably, a lot of these organizations are seeing left-wing threats uh, disproportionately and disproportionately imagining left-wing threats when in reality the, the, the actual threats of violence as we've seen uh, both in this case and also in the United States and in many other places, uh, real threats of violence and actual violent activity is pretty much the purview of the right-wing. Continuing on to continue to talk about the aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, uh, if you get tired of talking about this, if you get tired of hearing about it, too bad. I'm sorry. That's how coups work. Uh, you kind of have to deal with them uh, after they happen. Uh, this is going to take some serious political reckoning that won't be over for not weeks, not months, but not years, decades. Uh, one of the more recent things that happened is that GOP senators, uh, 45 out of 50 of them, uh, have argued that impeaching the former president, that is former President Donald Trump, for his involvement in planning or orchestrating or calling for this coup is unconstitutional. Uh, I'm recording this podcast on Tuesday, uh, so if there are further developments in the legal trial there, I'll talk about them next week. There's also further increasing evidence that the Proud Boys, the largest fascist organization in the United States, the most powerful and disturbing one, uh, were really close to and part of the planning and execution of the events of January 6th, uh, both on the ground and uh, on the Internet beforehand. 
more evidence about that is coming up. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that once we have a little bit more and maybe when some more prosecutions have come down. Especially interesting is the question of the involvement of their founder, Gavin McGinnis, whether he was present or not. Uh, if I'm missing information about his presence there, please let me know. Uh, point me to sources. Um, I, I, I want to be communicating about this and learning about it. Additionally, we have seen a lot of criticism uh, of the GOP by a lot of members of the right wing uh, for their failure to stop Biden from being inaugurated. You know, part of this is the aftermath of the failure of the predictions made by the QAnon movement, the conspiratorial anti-Semitic racist movement that argued that Donald Trump was, you know, some sort of like Christian Messiah savior who's going to swoop in at the last minute and prevent you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from becoming the president and vice president. That's not going to go away. There's uh, a lot of fallout from that, uh, especially in states whose electoral votes are the ones that the alt-right, that QAnon, that Trump uh, had contested. In particular, we've seen a lot of this activity in Arizona, uh, where prominent members of the GOP have said like, hey, you know, this, this, this shit is getting too serious. I don't want to deal with this. I'm actually going to leave politics soon because of it. One other thing that's happened after the January 6th uh, potential putsch um, is that there are possibly going to be sedition charges uh, made against one of the more famous people uh, in images of the coup. Uh, this is Zip Tie Guy, uh, whose real name is Eric Galavik Munkel, or Munchel, M-U-N-C-H-E-L. I, you know, I don't know how, how that his family anglicized that. Munchel? Munchel? Anyway. This is the person who had images taken of him, photographs taken of him during the coup, vaulting over some, you know, some railing in the actual chambers of Congress, uh, holding a bunch of zip ties, you know, in some like weird paramilitary mask and armor, that, that kind of thing. This is that guy. Uh, prosecutors have leaked or it has been leaked. Uh, that he is possibly going to face actual sedition charges. Uh, these are some of the criminal charges that are listed in the Constitution, uh, as opposed to in other legislation in the United States. Uh, this is some serious big deal. It's not very often that somebody gets charged with sedition, that is like treason, in the United States. One of the more interesting things here is that uh, Mr. Munchell claims that he was primarily acting like following his mother, who he invaded the Capitol with. Um, they claim together that it was the mother who sort of pushed the duo to go with people to enter the Capitol physically. And their argument, uh, you know, their defense uh, for themselves about being found with all of these like creepy zip ties and other like weaponry things that you could use to kidnap sitting members of Congress uh, was that, you know, th those weren't zip ties that they brought in. They found those on a cabinet in the congressional building and that they took them to stop other people, quote, bad actors, that's their quote, bad actors uh, from using them in the building, uh, I guess, to kidnap people. So, so, so effectively, their defense is like, hey, we weren't trying to kidnap Congress people. We thought that other people might have, and I guess that they put zip ties in the building to do that, or that they might have stolen zip ties that the Capitol Police had, and that we wanted to stop them. Uh, anyway, of course, when the police raided their home, uh, they found, no surprise, massive amounts of guns, massive amounts of ammunition, uh, lots of like tactical grade armor, that sort of stuff. So... Mm, this is one of the more interesting stories uh, when it comes to 
the legal aftermath of this attempted coup. Uh, we're going to have to stay tuned to see what happens to Munchal, his mother, and some of the other people facing prosecution for their involvement in the coup. I'm going to close out this episode as I do so many episodes with uh, my favorite segment on the show, I guess our only segment, See You in Hell, a segment that celebrates the deaths of prominent fascists and other members of the right wing in world history. This week, we're going to Indonesia and talking specifically about former Indonesian president uh, Suharto. Suharto was an Indonesian military officer. He was a, you know, he's got this like self-made man myth. He rose up through the ranks in the Indonesian military through the 1940s and 50s and was uh, one of the most prominent heads of the military by the 1960s. His military career coincides with the post-independence era in Indonesia when it was ruled by a different person uh, named Sukarno. Uh, Sukarno was a nationalist fighter against Dutch colonization and the longtime president of Indonesia, you know, a freedom fighter against the Dutch and also against Japanese occupation of Indonesia. After a failed coup against Sukarno, uh, which was blamed on communists, uh, whom Sukarno had been sort of edging towards and, you know, he'd been getting closer to the Soviet Union and to Maoist China, Suharto participated in a military takeover of the state in 1965 and put Sukarno in a uh, house arrest where he died in the 70s. The military takeover and civilian right-wing paramilitary organizations uh, killed somewhere between one and three million people in Indonesia. Uh, this is a massive act of mass death, uh, one of the largest since World War II. Uh, the targets were leftists, uh, that is members of the communist and socialist parties, students, uh, other sort of political dissidents and counterculture types, um, ethnic Chinese, women rights activists, and members of other ethnic minority groups. Uh, the reason that we don't know the exact numbers for the people killed is, well, it's pretty similar to the reason that we don't know the exact numbers of the people killed in most other sort of dirty war, uh, anti-left, anti-ethnic um, minority genocidal scenarios after World War II. Uh, it's that the people who did the killing succeeded in taking power long enough to cover it up. Suharto remained president of Indonesia after, you know, after a internal struggle amongst the military uh, over who was going to be the, you know, the top person in this military government. He maintained power in Indonesia from the late 60s uh, up until the late 90s, like like 1997, 98. Uh, his government was a an extremely nationalist one, not fascist per se, um, but a military dictatorship and then a quote, civilian government, uh, a perfect example of a right-wing leader who used paramilitary organizations and his own forces uh, to destroy domestic opposition, uh, a major nationalist and nationalization push uh, to try to get people, especially ethnic Chinese, uh, to identify with Indonesia as opposed to their Chinese heritage. Now, in the late 90s, the uh, Asian stock market crash of the late 90s, which is also part of the, the, the generalized global late 90s economic bubble that burst, you know, the dot-com bubble, that sort of thing, um, led to serious political destabilization uh, and a lot of up, un, unrest, some, some civilian uprisings, uh, which forced uh, him to resign. After his resignation, uh, Suharto remained an extremely wealthy and powerful man in Indonesia. Um, by some counts, he is the most corrupt political leader in modern history. Uh, arguably amassing, I mean, billions, I mean, it's not arguable that he amassed billions of dollars. The, the question is how much, uh, potentially upwards of $30 billion, uh, certainly as much as 15. Uh, 
he did not answer for his genocidal crimes, but there was some answering uh, for this like truly insane, like like actual record setting corruption. However, it was mostly members of his family who suffered these particular consequences. Um, namely, one of his sons was put in prison. Uh, Suharto himself, you know, faced some public scrutiny for this corruption, which is sort of how this thing goes. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, when we get to people like Perón. Um, but uh, he never faced serious prosecution for his crimes, um, was under house arrest temporarily, but usually got out of it and ultimately died in a hospital of age-related health issues uh, January 27th of 2008. So, uh, Suharto, we will see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics, and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>